Lake Effect brings you conversations about what's happening in Milwaukee and the people, places, and organizations that shape our community. This is Lake Effect Spotlight from WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. In 2019, eight-year-old Jefferson Rodriguez was fatally injured on a dairy farm in Dane County. Panicked farm workers, including the child's father, tried to communicate what had happened to authorities, despite a significant language barrier. The migrant farm workers spoke Spanish, and despite police attempts to translate, the story that emerged did not match the reality of what had happened. This story is at the heart of a recent investigation by ProPublica that looks into what really happened to Jefferson Rodriguez, the conditions on the farm that allowed for this accident, and how officials tasked with protecting the community responded. The piece was co-authored by Melissa Sanchez and Miriam Jamil. Sanchez joins Like Effect's Joy Powers to share more. In a warning to our listeners, this conversation includes descriptions of fatal injuries to a young child. This is a, a very difficult story to unravel, in, in part because of this misunderstanding, misunderstandings that happened at the very beginning. I'd like to start with the reality of what happened that evening at DNK Dairy. A new employee had just started working at the farm earlier that day and, and was put to work on some very dangerous equipment that evening. That's right. So there was a there were three workers at this farm in Dane County, and one had just started earlier that day on a 12 to 6 shift. And his job was to corral cows into and out of the milking parlor and clean up after them. Um, and that involved driving a skid steer. And I did not know what a skid steer was until I started reporting on this. But it's like a very small tractor. It's kind of like a high-low, but it's got this like bucket in front and they can kind of replace that attachment. But they kind of use it to scrape manure out of barns and corrals. He, he learned how to use a machine that very day. And he had, had to return after the 12 to 6 shift for a night shift that started at 8 o'clock. And there were two workers in the milking parlor. A couple of hours after that second shift started, you know, according to our interview with him and to other people who, who were there that night, he was backing the machine up in this dark area. It's unclear whether the lights on the machine worked. He had to use a flashlight at different points um, in the night to see what was happening but he was backing up the machine to turn it toward one of the corrals to, to clean it in time, to move the cows in time, to get them into the milking parlor in time to be milked. And suddenly he hit something. And when he looked in front of him, he could see the body of, of a boy, the son of one of his co-workers. As one might imagine, a lot of things happened in very quick succession right after that. They called the police, of course. They informed the people who owned the farm. It, it seemed like a very chaotic scene. The father, of course, was beside himself. What started to happen in the moments after this crash happens? Well, I don't think I said this earlier, but to be clear, the workers on that farm were immigrants. The three of them were Nicaraguan. And they did not speak English. And the owners of the farm did not speak Spanish. So from the start, when, when this man, who we identify in the story as Blandon, his, his last na name, after he realizes he struck this child, he runs to the milking parlor where the boy's father, Jose Rodriguez, is milking cows. And he screams and tells him that he accidentally hit his son. And so Jose runs, runs out to try to, to see what happened. And meanwhile, the other worker who was inside the parlor, a woman named Sandra, runs to the house where the, the owners of the, of the farm live. 
if, if you can imagine it, the house is, you know, maybe 20, 30 meters away from the milking parlor. It's all very close. The owners come out and Sandra doesn't speak English. And so she says the only words, some of the few words that she can say in English when the when the owner, Dan Brunig, comes out, she says, Jose's baby. And Jose looks up, he sees Jose walking back toward the parlor with his eight-year-old son, Jefferson, dead or almost dead in his arms. And when Dan Brunig calls 911, he says he doesn't know what happened, that he thinks the boy might have been trampled by a cows. And it's a very chaotic setting. There's cows everywhere. It's in the middle of a milking shift. So you have these English-speaking farm owners trying to understand what the tragedy was that just occurred. And all he can see is this, this boy whose head has been split in two in, in his worker's arms. And so as, as police, as the sheriff's office starts to arrive, at first it's in, it's in Dane County, but the first officer to arrive is from Columbia, which um, because the farm is right near the border, nearly everybody who showed up that night from the authorities didn't speak Spanish. And so there's a lot of confusion about how it was that this child wound up hurt and soon after declared dead on the scene. One of the things that I think really becomes clear, because some people might say, well, why was a child on a farm at night? But he, Jefferson wasn't the only child who was running around this farm or, in fact, many of Wisconsin's rural farms. What is the child care reality for people who are working in these situations? That, that's a really good question. So there, there's there's a problem with like access to affordable childcare. I think that's like across the country, urban or rural. But I, but for farms like this one, which was very normal in a lot of ways, it's exceptionally difficult both for farm you know white farm owning families and the people who work for them if they have children when they operate a farm that is a 24 hour a day operation. So this farm is not unusual in that it had three milking shifts and one of them started when one of them was overnight. Whether you work on the farm or you're a farm owner who has children on the farm, if you do have kids, if you don't have access to childcare, then they might be around if they're not asleep. So in this case, the facts of what happened are contested, but according to Jose, to Blandon, the man who killed his child, other workers there, a half dozen visitors to the farm, I think altogether, we have close to a dozen people who said that Jose and his son and two other workers lived in a loft apartment space above the milking parlor. And Jose and his son shared a bed in a bunk bed that they shared with another worker. This was in the middle of the summer. Um, Jose and his son had arrived from Nicaragua a few months earlier. The boy never attended school, but it, the death took place on a July night in 2019 when there was no school in session. And this boy got used to walking around at night and following these really erratic schedules of his father and the other workers. But in this case, there was a child living in the barn. And I say I said it was contested because the farm owners in a deposition said that that was not the case. They said that Jose and his son lived in a house down the road that they had for workers. But we've talked to workers who did live in the other house and the workers who did live in the barn, and they say that's not the case. But there's no data on this. We we know from anecdotal evidence from talking to dozens of, of, of dairy workers in Wisconsin that it is not uncommon for immigrant workers, particularly those who come in recent years from Central America with children, to have kids with them and then need to work. And because employers are often providing housing on site, then you do have kids around. This is Lake Effect on Milwaukee's NPR. I'm Joy Powers, and I'm speaking with Melissa Sanchez, 
the co-author of a recent ProPublica investigation into the death of eight-year-old Jefferson Rodriguez. As you've mentioned, many of the people who work on these farms, not just in Dane County, but throughout the state of Wisconsin, I think throughout the United States, are immigrants. These are people who are often vulnerable as a result of their immigration status. How does that impact the power balance on these farms? That's a, that's an interesting question. Yeah, there, there's no like hard and firm data on this, but if you walk on any farm and you see who's working in the parlor, it's very often going to be um, an immigrant worker. And in Dane County, they tend to be Nicaraguan. Over the years, like the landscape has changed and it went from like Mexican undocumented immigrants and now there's more and more Central Americans. And a lot of them aren't necessarily undocumented. They're people who came in seeking asylum, which is something that they're legally entitled to, but they might not have work permits because that um, there's like a whole process that comes into play. So they might be using fake papers to get their jobs. The, the, the reason why dairy farms employ immigrant workers is because nobody else wants to do this work. It's really dangerous. It's really dirty. Like I said, the hours are are messed up. And it's it's just hard, awful work. Jose was making, I think, nine fifty an hour at this farm. And like I said, he was working 80-hour weeks, and that was pretty standard um, across this farm and other farms. And you might think like, oh, well, with overtime, like one could make good money, except agriculture is excluded from so many of the labor protections that the rest of us are, you know, take for granted. And so there is no access to that additional time and a half pay when you work, when you work those many hours. In, in Wisconsin and in a lot of other states, like like Vermont or New York, where there's a lot of small farms, maybe five, six, seven hundred cows, not, not the big mega farms, employers typically provide housing for their workers. And they do this for a couple of reasons. Because of those, those crazy shifts that I mentioned that workers have to come in overnight, it's convenient to have workers kind of physically very close to where they need to be at work. And Wisconsin, as you may not may know, many years ago, uh, stopped allowing undocumented people to access driver's licenses. So undocumented people can't drive legally in Wisconsin. And if they do, they risk the possibility of getting ticketed. And those tickets can, can end up costing a lot. And that's an issue we hope to explore in the coming months. But because of their immigration status, and that's tied to, to pay, that ends up being tied to housing, it creates this really complicated dynamic between employer and employee. It's hard for workers to speak out about conditions that are not safe or convenient or good for them because they're undocumented. It's a really complicated dynamic. One of the things that also, it seems like as a result of how this original narrative was spun, one of the things that really wasn't explored by the police or authorities were the conditions on this farm that led to this accident. What are some of the dangers that were on the farm that, again, as we've talked about, were pretty banal, but ultimately impacted this situation? It's hard to know everything that happened because there there were no safety inspections at that farm that we that we know of ever OSHA is a federal like agency that is responsible for ensuring that workplaces are are safe that people don't suffer injuries or die during work but farms are treated with like a kind of exceptionalism in our country's labor law and small farms small meaning farms that employ 10 or fewer people are exempt from a lot of OSHA inspection like OSHA isn't allowed to spend its dollars its resources its manpower on inspecting um, small farms even when somebody dies or is injured and 
as a result, like we don't, we don't, we don't actually know all the problems that were taking place there. But what we know from interviews and from uh, from from records, from some court records, the the machine that that ended up running over this child may not have had working lights, a backup alarm, or a horn. An inspector who was hired by attorneys who are now representing the the father in a wrongful death lawsuit against the farm inspected the machine two and a half months after the the boy died and said that these things weren't working. Uh, the other worker who was there recalled that the the worker, Mlandon, he'd recently arrived from Nicaragua. He didn't have a phone of his own, and he asked to borrow hers to use as a flashlight because he couldn't see. It's, it was very dark. It's unclear what kind of training this guy received. He said that another worker trained him on how to use the the machine, and he he had to come back and use it on his own a few hours later after a long shift. We know that it's really common on these farms for people to work these miserable hours, like I said, and your body does not function well if, if it's working on little sleep. And that's not to, to single out this particular farm for, for this, but this is pretty common from what we understand on farms, that people work work these kinds of hours and, and it's really hard to be alert. And and then, yeah, like there, there was a child who people knew was running around at night on the work site. So there were a lot of different factors at play and nobody ever did anything about it, either before Jefferson died or after. A medical examiner who who investigated the case, she called OSHA the night that Jefferson died to let them know that this child who was at work with his father was dead. But OSHA said that they because he wasn't a worker, they wouldn't inspect and they, they didn't inspect. Child welfare services were called the night of Jefferson's death. And you know this county agency that's overseen by the state is supposed to investigate any time there's a there's the, the possibility or suspicion of abuse or neglect of a child, and and they from what we can tell they didn't do anything. And I I don't want to suggest that the child was abused or neglected, but there was a child who was running around on a farm late at night unsupervised, and then the police too, the the sheriff's department, um, they investigated the death. And they had made some pretty catastrophic mistakes in their investigation, but they um, ultimately focused the investigation on was this death an accident or not? And it was. So they ruled it an accident, case closed, and they did nothing to step back and, and understand what the conditions were on the farm, like whether it was the housing above the barn, whether whether the, the machine was was working properly, whether the worker was properly trained, whether the there was proper supervision for the child. None of these things were looked at by anybody. It sounds like just a lot of systems that ended up failing here. As you look at this story, as you look at the death of Jefferson Rodriguez, what do you think we should learn from this? What do you hope readers take away when they read your piece? And what do you hope, you know, this community hears in this story? I mean, th- there's a lot. I think, I mean, I don't live in, in Wisconsin. I live in Chicago. So I kind of come into it from an outsider's perspective. But there are a lot of immigrant workers in really miserable, inhumane conditions who whose labor is helping us access milk at decent prices in the grocery store. And and there has been this narrative that I've I've kind of heard over over the past several months of reporting. There's like benevolent farm owners and like immigrants are happy to do the work and the O farms are happy to have the immigrants and all is good, like nothing to see here. And it's sort of this wink wink, nod, nod. Everybody is aware that the folks doing the work are undocumented, but nobody says anything. And what the death of this boy shows is that that it's 
the conditions are not what most of us would want for our own children or for ourselves. And, you know, and I, I didn't even get to the, the police failure here when the one deputy on the scene who spoke any Spanish interviewed the father. There was a significant language failure. And she understood from his grieving, hysterical father that he had killed his child. And he didn't. And he didn't go to jail. There weren't criminal charges. But the but the public narrative about what happened, the official account was that this immigrant dad killed his kid and everybody was so sad about it. And it was such an awful tragedy. But that was the end of the story. And that's not actually what happened. And, and so I, I do think folks, I really hope can take from this that language is really important. And there's very there's we, we, we have filed records requests and police responses at dozens and dozens of farms across the state. And it's really common for deputies to show up and not be able to communicate with workers. So they rely on the boss to interpret. They rely on children to interpret. They rely on Google Translate for for translations. We found a case of a guy who got shot in the eye at a a farm and nobody ever interviewed the victim. They're like, oh, it was an accident, like end of story. And so there's serious problems here with law enforcement's ability to communicate with folks who then become even more isolated, like their their, their voices just aren't even counted often when, when serious situations take place. Melissa, thank you so much for joining us here on Lake Effect and sharing your work. Thank you for having me. Melissa Sanchez is the co-author of the ProPublica investigation on the death of eight-year-old Jefferson Rodriguez. Sanchez spoke with Lake Effect's Joy Powers. You can find more interviews like this one by visiting wuwm.com slash lakeeffect. And while you're there, subscribe to the Lake Effect Spotlight podcast.